Hello, welcome to Mikey Pod Podcast, episode 311 for December 3rd, 2020. Today's guest is activist, rescuer, and friend Jill Carnegie. We'll be talking about her work as campaign strategist for the Alliance to End Chickens as Caporos. We'll be doing some specific talking about this past year's efforts and um, uh, the efforts from years past. So, yay! <laughs> I'm your host, Michael Heron. I'm a composer, pianist, electronic musician, storyteller, and activist based in New York City. On this podcast, I have conversations with fellow creators who use their creativity to change the world. I've been sending this podcast to your ears for over 15 years. If you like what you hear, subscribe using the colorful buttons on the sidebar and footer at MikeyPod.com or just search MikeyPod in your favorite podcast directory. If you'd like to know more about me, stop by my website at michaelherron.com. Hit me up on social media everywhere as at michaelherron or email mikeypod at gmail.com. So I missed you all last week. It was Thanksgiving. I was feeling a little like, ah, about getting the podcast out week after week. So I decided it might be a good time to take a break. And uh, yeah, so then this week I was going to put the podcast up on Monday and then I got stalled and then I realized all the audio was jacked up and uh, Jill was kind enough to redo our interview yesterday. Uh, so you'll hear a brand new fresh interview with it, the, the old. It, I, it took me a minute to get the old one up to begin with. So it's not terrible that we uh, <laughs> had to redo it. Uh, anyway, thank you, Jill, for being willing to do this again. And it was kind of a nice moment because she was at Tamerlane Sanctuary, which houses a lot of these chickens who have been rescued from uh, Kaporos, which we'll be talking about today. If you don't already know, and we talk about what Kaporos is, um, if you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, you probably already know. It's a um, it's a ritual that's used um, right before Yom Kippur, and it is it involves uh, sacrificing chickens. It's it's awful. So uh, we'll talk more about that, just in case you're wondering what I'm talking about right now. Um, you'll hear all about it in the interview, and it's not as well... <laughs> It's, well, you'll hear all about it in the interview. I also want to throw out there that I am in the process of putting together a new zine that I'll be offering on Patreon. Um, it's been almost a year since the last one went out. It's been a strange year, of course. Um, but I didn't even realize that, you know, time, This has it been like that for you all too? Like, time is really like, what? It seems really weird because of the whole pandemic and how everything has shifted. Um, but anyway, there's going to be a new zine. Yay! I finished the story for the most part. Now it's in the design process. And I was going to try to get a special offer going um, to to uh, get people to sign up for Patreon to get the new zine um, this month. But I think it might have to wait till January because I don't want to be freaking out and rushing. Uh, so yeah, I would love to get back in the process of doing that. If you'd like to know more about those zines, you can check out my website at michaelherron.com or always patreon.com slash michaelherron. Um, and there are a couple of them on Bandcamp now too. You could go to shop.michaelherron.com and tomorrow on Friday, um, Bandcamp does this really cool thing where they, um, I, I sell my music and t-shirts and, uh, zines and books, all the different stuff that I make on Bandcamp. And now one... Friday, the first Friday of every month, they've been allowing the uh, artists to keep everything. So typically, they take a percentage, which makes sense because you know uh, they're they're facilitating the sales. Uh, but on the first Friday of every month, you can uh, you know check it out. So if you've been meaning to check out, buy one of my books, something like that, tomorrow would be a good day to do it. Shop.michaelherron.com. The last, oh, I'm doing a lot of self-promotion day. That's okay. A uh, quick thank you to my subscribers on Patreon, which I mentioned before, who power this podcast. They, these are people who subscribe for $5 or more a month and get special perks like tons of free downloads of my music and zines and bonus podcasts. There are over... 55 of these bonus podcasts now that you'll get immediate access to when you subscribe on Patreon. So check that out. Um, you could do as little as five bucks a month and uh, you'll get access to all that stuff and the, all the digital zines too. You'll get a bunch of stuff when you sign up. So uh, yeah. And if you sign up, well, I'll know and I'll send you a message anyway. So yay. All right. Last thing, I want to play a track from my pal, Kirsten Marilyn, who's been on the podcast in my live shows. Uh, more times than I can count. Um, if we're talking about New York City activism, like 
you got to play a Kirsten Maryland song. So I'm going to play a song from her new album before the interview. Uh, this is called Legacy. And after this, we'll hear from Jill Carnegie. Oh, my God. Ra-ta-ta-ta. Legacy. The things you did to pass the time before you died. Tradition. The things you do to mask the trauma you endured as a child Culture The thing we think sets us apart That we're one in the same Religion The thing that ties the blindfold tight So we can't feel the pain We can't stop now For the fear we feel is just too real Joining me now on the podcast is Jill Carnegie, friend, activist, rescuer. Hello. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, I have to go ahead and call myself out for having screwed up our first interview. Like the podcast is already going to be like start with an apology for me taking so long to post it. And now I'm like, okay, we just, we just have to start again. So thank you for your willingness to do that. No, I'm more than happy to do it because honestly, when we spoke before, um, we were still in the aftermath of Kaporos rescue work and um, I was fried. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure this will be a much more coherent and dare I say energetic conversation. <laughs> uh, we're, um, we're expecting all the energy. Okay. Yes. I will bring on the... Uh, the creepy cheerleader energy. <laughs> yes. For you. Yes. So that's what we're talking about today is Kaporos, not creepy cheerleader energy, though we could totally get into that too. Maybe we'll have a break in the middle of the darkness of Kaporos. So the I had the idea of having you on the podcast just to talk about, you know, um, I, I've been protesting Kaporos many times. This was the first time I was there helping at a triage site. And as I'm saying this, someone's probably listened to the podcast being like, wait, what is this Kaporos? What are they talking about? Um, would you mind doing the rundown of what it is? 
Sure. Uh, so to start with just the bare bones, no elaboration or editorial kind of add-ons, what Kaporos is, is it's a ritual performed by uh, certain segments of the Jewish community. It literally means atonement. So it's an atonement ritual in the days leading up to Yom Kippur. The majority of Jewish folks who engage in this ritual uh, use a pouch with money and they swing the money over the head of the person receiving atonement three times as they recite a prayer and then that money is donated to charity. So that's how the majority of the people who engage in this practice, it's just a custom. It's not mandated in the Torah or anything like that. And many secular Jewish folks don't even really know about this ritual. Um, however, the Kaporos that we are going to be talking about today is one that a much smaller segment of the Jewish community uh, practices, which uses live chickens instead of the pouch of money. So in that instance, they hold the chicken by the wings pinned behind their back, typically. They swing the chicken over the head of the person receiving atonement three times as they recite a prayer. And then that chicken is slaughtered and um, it, it's supposed to be donated, the body is supposed to be donated to the hungry or the poor. Uh, in the case of New York City, Kaporos with chickens, uh, what we have found is that the majority of the chickens who are slaughtered are in fact thrown in the garbage rather than donated to the poor. Um, there's also plenty of other um, religious conflicts uh, with the way that it's practiced in New York City, but that's the, the basics of it. That, to someone who's never witnessed it, is probably like, oh my God, that sounds terrible. And that's not, that's like, you can't put it into words about how yeah. terrible it is. That's no editorial addition. That's just what happens as, um, in as least disturbing a way as I can describe it. And I do want to point out one thing, though. I said that it's a much smaller segment of the Jewish community. It is. However, in New, in New York City, we are the, we are home <laughs> to the second largest population that does use chickens as kaporos. So even though it is a small part of the global community that engages in the practice, uh, in New York City, we're talking about at least 100,000 chickens, and we're talking about five to six days of this ritual happening day after day, just so that everyone who engages in it can engage in it. So even though we are talking about this is not a Jewish standard, this is not an anti-Semitic kind of a thing, um, I do still want to acknowledge that this is still a massive um, ritual slaughter that happens in New York. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm glad you said that because, I mean, I think humans are, most of us just, you know, when when I would hear that, I think, I feel like I would hear you describe that, you know, when you were just kind of giving the bare bones and be like, oh, like probably some people in their backyard, like five or 10 people like, Oh my God, that's kind of bad. But it's you, like you said, a hundred thousand chickens. Right. And even in other cities where it's practiced with chickens, typically it's one, two or three locations where they do it the day before Yom Kippur. That's so anyone who is familiar with this ritual in their city outside of New York, unless they're in Israel, in certain parts of Israel where it is larger, than New York City. Um, what, what they're probably used to thinking of Kaporos as is it's one day and it's a small number of locations and a small number of participants. In New York City, it is literally just about a week long and it is over 100,000 humans and chickens involved. I mean, it's absurdly giant for what it is. Yeah. The, the first time I went to a protest of this, we were like completely separate from the ritual there were police that had us like penned in there were maybe 20 of us with signs and we're surrounded by practitioners of this thing screaming at us um and so i've watched it all evolve from there you know like and that was that uh rena Deitch, whose last name i always worry i'm mispronouncing is like a total rock star and she started legend. yeah and she started this happening in, in like the protesting of of it by herself yes she yeah. actually on her own she was responsible for the shutting down of i think two locations of chicken caparos in borough park by herself before this <laughs> even became a movement that's how much of a legend like rena is yeah like, um, yeah. yeah incredible and then from there i i i i've seen it evolve to you know there was i feel like there was one year when animal rights activists in New York City got really like 
fired up in general. 2016. Yeah, and that yes. that and that year, <laughs> it, we didn't we didn't stay in the pens that year. <laughs> like protesters were like, "We're going in." Like, fuck these pens. I don't know why I'm trying to be diplomatic because it's 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 quote unquote our side. I heard some things that year that were unfortunate and some things happened that were unfortunate. I'm still kind of sugarcoating it. Oh, it was it was an explosion of righteous anger. Yeah, that's the thing. Like and in this way, I'm like righteous it really is. Like it's yeah. the most horrible thing I've ever seen. All the senses are offended by Caparos. The smell stays with you. The sounds of the chick the baby chickens screaming. The um you know like and the, the closeness, there is something cultural in the Hasidic community that engages in this practice where they have no sense of personal space, I have found. Even when it's not confrontational, it's the same thing. So it is a cultural thing. It, and I'm not judging it harshly, but when you're in the middle of a very contentious atmosphere, you feel like you are surrounded and it's very claustrophobic. Um, I mean, it's like every every sense that you have is just completely assaulted by what is all around you, 360 degrees, all day, all night, or all week, or whatever. I mean, it's really, it's so much. So yes, it's definitely righteous anger. It's a completely natural and like equal response to what we're witnessing. Mm -hmm. But because we're trying to affect change, we have to be mindful also of how it appears uh, to an outsider looking in. It can appear anti-Semitic. And unfortunately, you know, just like every community, there are activists who are not the most enlightened individuals. And so anyone who already had anti-Semitic proclivities, that would certainly be stoked by what they were witnessing. So unfortunately, 2016 was kind of the culmination of, you know, no real focus and activists really just sort of running wild. And what ended up happening was that ever since then, we've been trying to remedy that aggression, um, like how that how that looked and the way that it tainted the campaign. We've come a long way since then, um, thankfully. And then the following year, was that when you sort of started stepping in? in more of a organizational role? Uh, yes, I was brought in in uh, June 2017 uh, as campaign strategist because the people who had been leading uh, Kaporos for years were completely burnt out. I mean, and Rena doesn't burn out, but she definitely needed help. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she'd been doing this on her own for so long. Um, and so the first thing we did was we made sure that um, we had all of our I's dotted, T's crossed, and we focused that year mostly on reporting violations, um, videotaping each other, reporting the laws being broken to NYPD, just making sure that all of that was really documented, that we'd done our civic duty and gone through, quote unquote, the proper channels of making sure, even though we knew that everyone already knew about this issue. I mean, we had a lawsuit against the city going. Like all the officials and all the agencies knew that laws are being broken by this mass ritual slaughter. Um, but we wanted to make sure that we had it really documented that we had done that. So that was one way of scaling back the aggression was tasking the activists with, with doing this. Um, and then the following year was when we started to collaborate with uh, the Animal Save movement. And that's when we brought all the attention to the chickens, where it always should have been more so on the chickens rather than the practitioners. However, we didn't realize until we went through this process that it had gone away from the chickens and more toward the practitioners, you know. So I don't I don't want to speak ill of us going through that process. Like this is all a learning curve. Yeah. Um but now we just go in and we provide care to the chickens who are stacked in these transport crates. We provide them with water, with watermelon. Um, and when we see birds who have visibly broken bones or who are dying, we, uh, we work hard to negotiate their release um, from the practitioners or if police are there with the police assistants. Um, and then we've been partnered with Jewish Veg for the last couple of years, uh, who typically act as kind of a front line for us, engaging in outreach. So that way it's a Jewish presence speaking to the Jewish community. 
while the rest of the activists are focused exclusively on the victims, which in this, which are the chickens. The thing that really hit home for me about how that was different was the response of the police. Because when we showed yes. up, there was that sort of tension of like, oh, God, here come the activists. And then we just went right to the crates and started giving water and food and saying, you know, we're here because these animals, you know, um, and seeing the police like, oh, OK, well, how can we help you get to these? Like what, what let us know how we can help you care for the chickens. And right. it, and, it, and it took the, you know, I'll speak for myself, like it's an emotional time to go there. I mean, obviously, especially for people who are open to the suffering of animals. It took me out of victim mode and made me realize like, oh, wait, I'm not, I mean, this sucks. This is horrible, but I'm not the victim. <laughs> like yes. it's these chickens. Yes. These um, six week old chickens. So this year was my first year to be a little more behind the scenes. Is it fair to say that? Like, is there a behind the scenes of this? I think, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, well, there's all kinds of behind the scenes, yeah, but there's... I think what we're referring to today are the rescues, which is actually separate than what I was hired to do. So it's funny because, well, funny is an odd word, whatever, I'm sticking with it for now. Mm -hmm. um, the funny thing is that um, nowhere in what I was hired to do was, was rescue included, but um, I also do engage in animal rescue. And over time, um, it just na naturally evolved that I assisted with, uh, you know, securing placement for the birds, which we do in advance because these are special, you know, these are, these are Cornish cross chickens, which are known in the industry as broiler birds. They're the ones that are raised to be meat. Um, and so they are very, they're like one of the most genetically altered animals on the planet. So they're very compromised. So it's difficult to find homes that are uh, able to care for them. They have to be separated. They have to be fed a calorie controlled diet, you know, all the, it's special care. So we have to work hard on placement all year round. And since I uh, was acting as campaign strategist, that meant that sanctuaries around the country knew to reach out to me to say, oh, we have homes uh, if you want to bring some rescues here. So over time, I added on the volunteer <laughs> role of co-coordinating the rescue effort as well. So that's actually entirely separate from the campaign strategy role. Um, so the the rescue effort is 100% volunteer. Mm. Um, and I co-organize it with a few other individuals. Um, so yes, what you saw was was behind the scenes of the, the rescue work this year. Yeah, so I was, I was helping out like a, maybe a day and a half at this, I mean, huge week long. Three days, I think, right? Two, uh, maybe two or three. I think it was like two or three days you were okay. there. Anyway. But yeah. what I saw when I was there was a whole nother level of what happens with this effort, right? I've been on the streets with the protesting um, and some of the planning. But this was like, holy shit, like I was... We can talk about where the triage site was, yes, right? Yes, because we, we won't be able to go back there next year because they're moving locations. So, yes, we can freely acknowledge them. Uh, <laughs> so yes, we, we were in this, like, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, uh, kind of warehousey neighborhood in Brooklyn. What's yeah, the very word? Industrial. For, thank you. I couldn't think of the word industrial. At a, um, like a, tell me the name of the thing. You better explain it because I'm losing uh, my words. It's called the Muse, which is an acrobatic training facility. So uh, for human circus performers, uh, this is where they go to train, to teach. Uh, they also are an event space. They would hold performances pre-COVID. Uh, and they have a backyard. And in that backyard, they have a giant shipping container <laughs> with electric hooked up to it. Um, and so they give us uh, free access 24 seven uh, to their backyard and that shipping container. And so we converted the shipping container to a hospital uh, with the assistance of Tamerlan um, Sanctuary and Preserve. Sorry, they just changed their name. So let me say that again, Tamerlan <laughs> Sanctuary and Preserve. Um, I'm actually there right now. Uh, I'm, I'm like an older home uh, by, by Tamerlane. So that's what this background is. Um, but they, they assist us uh, greatly on the ground with the hospital um, element. So the shipping container becomes a hospital 
uh, for these birds before they go to their fosters and then eventually their forever homes. Yeah. So we're in this backyard of yeah. this place with Very riggings. Very backyard. Yeah. With riggings and people during the day were practicing on silks. Mostly I saw silks outside. Um, and then random packs of activists bringing in chickens. There are chickens like in in these big fenced-in areas to keep them safe while like then so the levels we have are people who were there to triage the animals we have protesters out on the streets we have uh, rescuers on the streets there's a, at least one vehicle probably more that served as like an ambulance right yeah, that's what we call them we call them ambulances <laughs> yeah going back and forth from the action to the triage site yeah who are helping chickens taking them to the triage site uh, administering administering emergency care when needed and then the people start showing up who are like hey i'm here to take chickens to freaking iowa or something like people yes. are driving all over the coming and picking up chickens to drive them to sanctuaries all over the country yes what like yes <laughs> i mean i i i guess i knew i knew that was happening like somehow but being there just for that short time like like having like okay so we got to get these chickens in crates okay what were the crates like we you know like and when we're saying this stuff crates, out. by the way for listeners we're talking about like carry like animal carrier crates not like transport crates right to, yeah <laughs> i'm glad you said that um, yeah so into okay we need to put these chickens into roomy spacious crates <laughs> and like <laughs> yeah. but like watching that part of it made me really realize how much do you do and how much so many volunteers do who are it's and this happens to me every time I really think about this. I used to think like, oh, this is chicken, like these packs of food that I would go to the grocery store and get when I ate chickens. Right. And now there's this huge community of people who are working behind the scenes helping them. Um, yeah. Yeah. And this year we broke a record for a single rescue crew uh, and we rescued 510 birds, which is an incredible volume of animals in the space of um, like five and a half days, basically. Mm. I, I, love, I think that like, <laughs> I love it. I'm like, and scene, like, <laughs> you know, there's this part that I'm like, that's the thing I wanted people to know. But, you know, like while you're at Tamerlane, maybe we should talk about they they take some of the most injured most the most in need animals yeah yes uh we do have uh, we also have like a vine sanctuary took a couple of our special needs birds so we we do have a few partners that do that but tamerlin always is wonderful about taking in many of the the special needs birds so uh, they actually have now their own separate barn and area that they call their Wounded Warriors bar Barn. Uh, and this is where the birds go who have mobility issues, who have wing amputations, um, or anything else that might make it so that if we try to introduce them into uh, more of a healthy flock, then it might make them vulnerable to maybe not accessing food as quickly or um, or maybe just getting into physical spats with with other birds or something like that. So yeah, they have their own wounded warriors barn at Tamerlane. Um, in addition to Tamerlane having another area to quarantine the incoming, you know, not wounded warrior birds mm -hmm. um, until, you know, they've gone through their whole vetting process and, and uh, they know that they're clear to be integrated into the flock without bringing some sort of a, an illness or something like that, because these birds all come from factory farms. So all of them are sick. It's just a matter that it's a matter of the fact that some of them are more sick or more injured than the others. Hmm. But every one of them is ill when they come in, when we rescue them, which is why we need the triage center, because they need to be stabilized for, for transport, uh, for travel. And if they're not stable, then they have to go to our fosters that are local and receive treatment there until they can go. Like we had two foster homes, uh, one upstate and one in Long Island um, to hold birds before transport so they could stabilize or so we could arrange the transportation. Mm, that's a whole nother <laughs> layer that I left out. It's 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 really incredible. It's endless. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like it's so much work. When yeah. um when we were talking, 
yesterday you mentioned some uh, potential places people if people are listening to this and they would like to contribute to the care of these animals. Um, you mentioned a couple of places that we should talk about now, and I'll also write in the show notes of oh, the sure. podcast. Oh, sure. Well, there's two places that you can go. Um, you can certainly uh, contribute directly to Tamerlan Sanctuary and Preserve because not only do they take in the highest number of special needs birds, but um, they also are literally the ones who are on the ground with us all week providing that, emer- that emergency medical care. Um, they're the only sanctuary that's with us all week long. We do have other sanctuaries who send um, help, you know, in the busier final days, um, which we're really grateful to them for that. Um, and so if you want the funds to be more kind of distributed, uh, we left open our GoFundMe link for the main rescue kind of fund. And basically um, any funds that come in now that we've reached that goal, um, we can distribute to the various sanctuaries around the country. For example, there's um, Sisu's Refuge down in North Carolina. They have 20 of our birds, and one of them now needs a wheelchair because she's having mobility issues. Uh, they built her one, but you know, she needs special care. So if I were to get like a $50 donation came into the GoFundMe, I would funnel it over to Sisu's Refuge to take care of the cost of the wheelchair and all of that. Oh, got it. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. So I'll put links for that for Tamerlane. And then it's, I don't, have we even said the name of the organization, the Alliance to Ban Chickens and Skaporos? Right. Well, so the, so the organization that leads the protest efforts um, is the Alliance to End Chickens as Skaporos. And then uh, that's a project of United Poultry Concerns, which is a national organization uh, run by Karen Davis. And then, uh, but the, the rescue crew is, I mean, I'm affiliated to the Alliance, and the Alliance supported our crew with some funding, which is great. But we are independent and volunteer-run. So I know that can make it a little bit confusing, but... I think you broke it down pretty well right there. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) I tried. So this is a huge, huge undertaking. And, I mean, out of uh, what... You said 100,000 birds. Out of that... We saved 500 something. Is that what you said? 510 this year. Typical is between 200 to 250. The glass half full way of looking at that is like, oh my God, we saved more chickens than ever. But there's also this idea that like, holy shit, like that's a drop in the bucket. And this sounds like, I I think I'm setting you up to like say something really good by being negative. (laughs) But like, (laughs) but you know, like what? Why? Like, why do you why do you do that? And how do you do that? Well, so I think it's interesting. There, uh, there are some people, uh, activists even, who would criticize this amount of effort and resources and compromising of our emotional health uh, to do this work um, for an issue that is niche when compared to the bigness of animal agriculture. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about other animal issues, you're talking. I mean, if you're talking about factory farms, then we're talking about millions of chickens, right? Uh, versus the hundred thousand in New York City versus the five hundred ten that we save, right? Um, so when you break it down like that, it seems like it might be an inefficient use of energy uh, if you just look at it strategically. But once you are there. And once you know that these birds are literally on the streets, suffering in these transport crates with no food or water, and you are in New York City, you have no option but to help. If you don't go and do something, it's like walking by somebody who just collapsed on the sidewalk and not even pausing to see if they need help to stand or if they need you to call 911. It's it's that's what it feels like. So to just turn a blind eye or not do the best we possibly can is just not an option. You have to help when they're right there. The nearest factory farm to us is five hours away, six hours away. It's not as realistic, you know, for us to put in. 24 seven work, you know, um, on something like that, but this is literally in our streets and they're suffering too. Yeah. 
So they don't know whether they have it better or worse than the birds who are still in the factory farm. They don't, they just know that they're suffering and they know that they need help. Mm. So someone has to do it. Well, I'm glad that you're doing it and like all of the people that are doing it are doing it. You yeah. Know, there's so many people involved. It's such an incredible community effort. Um, many rescuers stay under the radar, which is great. They need to. Um, so I'm just sort of here giving voice, uh, I hope reasonably well to a, a whole group of people who are so dedicated to this. Um, and you came to help as well. You felt called upon. Yeah. Well, I also called you and asked you, but <laughs> <laughs> literally, literally and figuratively called yes, upon. Yeah. You were called upon, but you also felt compelled enough to, to do it. And I'm wondering how you felt coming out of it. Um, after being a part of it on that level for the first time. Um, weirdly hopeful. Like, I think I appreciated not being in the middle of the mayhem of the, I mean, I always call it a, like a street fair. It looks like a huge, gruesome, brutal street fair with suffering everywhere. Um, so I, I, I've, I've seen that a lot of times. And I think last year I just completely was like, not, you know, like for that and like personal reasons, you know, a lot of things go into being an activist, right? Um, it, it was really good for me to kind of see that the, the uh, broadness of, of help of people who were just like something about seeing the people show up in their cars and I knew they were driving, they're going to be driving for like hours, days like helping and some of them already had and they were coming back like seeing all of these people this is what I think I got out of it like it was seeing the people that were willing to really sacrifice their own personal time to help and they were just doing it you know it's a good reminder of like kind of puts me in a position of like okay so am I doing all I can do you know like it really but in a in a very like positive kind of kind way I really was like am I being as kind as I can be like is there more that I can give to the world even if it's chickens you know like uh yeah so that's I feel like I went a little <laughs> esoteric <laughs> it's hard to really put that all into words mm -hmm. but um it, it was it was a I mean it's so awful saying it was a positive experience being involved in anything like that but I think it had a positive effect on me to right. participate in it. No, absolutely. I would say that the rescue side is definitely far more gratifying, even though you do end up in the darkest of dark places to get to the birds sometimes, or a lot of times, depending on your level of involvement in the active rescue. Um, just to be able to see them go off to their forever homes, to be able to spend some time uh, holding them and assessing them. And, you know, Cornish cross chickens, even though they are so genetically altered and very unnatural birds at this point, whatever they did to breed them to grow so large so fast and become like these kind of Frankenstein birds, they also bred into them the sweetest, most curious, quirky personalities. Like, to see them survive this... And to know that they get to have their chicken life now, mm -hmm. uh, whether it lasts three months or nine years, you never know with these birds, but at least they get to have that after all the suffering they've been through. It definitely, it is gratifying and it is hopeful. That was one of the things, and I, maybe this will be my last <laughs> little moment. You know, I was seeing these chickens who had been in a factory farm and then they had been in these transport crates that are horrific. Like they like 12, 15 of them crammed into these crates where they can't really even stand up fully. They can't, yeah. Yeah, and the and they've been stacked. There's shit everywhere, like shit everywhere. And then these chickens who are still kind of filthy because they've just been rescued are standing in this weird backyard walking on AstroTurf like, oh, this is fucking awesome. Where did, what is this? This is great. They didn't even know yet <laughs> that right. the next stop was going to be like, oh, we got real grass waiting for you guys. Um, right. <laughs> but right. it's, it's, it's interesting to think of their perspective, right? Like they, I mean, all they knew, all they knew was like misery 
Like they thought that was what it was meant to be alive. Right. And, and then there's, and then because of people like, okay, I'm, I'm going like, whoa, like man, because of people just helping, but that's what it is. The helpers are a beautiful thing. <clears throat> and yeah. you're touching on something that I think is kind of amusing though. And I think it's worth noting, uh, uh-huh. although it's toward the end of our conversation. So maybe it's bad timing for it, but um, for people who are not typically involved in like large scale, like in large numbers, kind of rescue, large scale rescues, they, they only, the only thing that you see typically, if, if you ever see footage of a rescue, usually it's like the grab and run or it's the negotiation and then they surrender the bird or whatever. But really the majority of rescue is just moving confused animals from one place to another, to another, to another until they're finally home. It literally is. So in the case of chickens, it's just a (laughs) lot of picking up chickens and putting them here and then picking them up and putting them there. That's the majority (laughs) of like the physical labor. That's mainly what I did at the triage place. It's like, here, can you hold this chicken while we're like, because chickens shit a lot like that. Like it's a lot of like, okay, we got to move the chickens out of this area so we can clean up their shit (laughs) and put them back. And we uh, need every set of hands that we can trust there possible because there's so many birds. Yeah. So it was really helpful to have you there to hold this chicken <laughs> while we do this and move this chicken over there. Uh, <laughs> I love it. It's so not glamorous. <laughs> I was just going to say we're really selling this as like a very glamorous. <laughs> Welcome to New York City. The glitz and glamour. Yes, of the Chicken Underground Railroad, <laughs> which many people call it, you know. Like, yeah. <laughs> to, to end it on a sweet note, just because that was kind of a random note to end it on. Yeah. Um, I do want to point out there are moments in there, though, where they're not just purely confused and, like, <laughs> just being shifted around. Um, I remember there was one point where I was on the phone with the vet getting ready to... T- oh, and I think you saw this. Mm-hmm. It was the last day, and we were completely burnt out and overwhelmed and we found a bird with a gash that we had missed previously on the first round of assessments because there were so many birds that day. Um, as so I was calling the vet, and while I was on the phone and I had the chicken on the table in front of me, I was barely even seeing the chicken because I had like no sleep, long day, on the phone with the vet. And the chicken just kept walking closer and closer and looking at me, and then out of nowhere walked right up to my chest and put their head on my shoulder. Uh, while I was on the phone with the vet. And it was that moment that reminded me like, oh, be present. Like, mm-hmm. these, you know, these babies are, are ready to receive love if you're present enough to give it. You know, um, some of them are still scared when they come in, but um, it was just such an amazing moment of connection from a bird who had just been taken out of hell maybe two hours prior. Mm. And they were ready to come up and give this human on their cell phone a hug. And it was so sweet. I got another question. Did you ever imagine, like, my perception of chickens was just, oh, they're like, what, even like when I started, before I went to Tamerlane for the first time, and I think I had done Kaporo's protesting before then, but I'd never interacted with an actual chicken. I still was like, oh, I mean, they're there's chicken. Like I, I wanted them to be treated fairly and, and with kindness, but I was like, I mean, come on, it's a chicken, but I wasn't <laughs> expecting to ever have like a connection with a chicken. Were you that way too? Uh, I'm really fortunate that I grew up rescuing animals. Um, my, my mom had that proclivity and that included, uh, like starlings and birds. So I actually did have relationships with a few birds before getting to chickens. So I think I was not necessarily, I don't think I was as surprised as what you might be articulating, but Mm -hmm. what I, but what I, what did, what did impress me is just how many of the chickens were ready to really receive affection and ready to trust you. You know, there are times when I got a chicken into a car and they like immediately after rescue, we're still in the car and they would choose out of all the places around me that they could walk to come over next to me and lie down. You know, that's yeah. the thing that impressed me and surprised me about rescuing chickens uh, was just how quickly they could sense and perceive this human is different than the humans I've met before. Mm-hmm. And that's incredible. Um, and I think that shows 
a much sharper mind rather than like a simple mind that might just be, oh, you're a person. Now I'm going to like you. Like, no, this chicken had no reason to like anybody. So I don't think it was because they were too simple to know the difference. I really think it was just that they're able to perceive this one is not like the others. I think that's a perfect place for us to like wrap up our conversation. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Tied off with a little bow. Uh, well, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Of course. Thank you for having me and good luck with the audio on this take. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> I'll need it.
Live at Tamerlane Farm, that was Lapdog with El Rocoto. I just saw this video. I had never heard this band before, but Tamerlane posted this on their Facebook group and through a series of chasing them down, thanks to Jill and Viola at Tamerlane. Um, there you have it. That was Lapdog, and we are yay! It was filmed, it was taped at Tamerlane. These are these moments that I just love with podcasting i don't think anyone loves as much as i do but i like combining things and like making little themes and of course shining a spotlight on uh artists and activists like jill today i want to just sort of recognize my typical theme is activist artist and jill actually is an artist but today we didn't talk about that we talked just about her activism and her rescuing and i feel like it fits in with the vibe of what i do every week um So I don't even know why I'm explaining that to you. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for listening. Uh, It would be wonderful if you like this podcast, if you would tell a friend, because word of mouth, I think, is the way for my thing to grow. And and I really had a moment a couple weeks ago, and I think this is why I also didn't do a podcast this week. Podcasting is a lonely, lonely world. (laughs) It sort of is. And, you know, I'm very, very excited and passionate about sharing these conversations and the music I find for you. And sometimes it's a little disappointing (laughs) to look at download numbers and that sort of thing that aren't where I would like for them to be. Not out of a sense of wanting to be famous by any means, but just for the fact of like putting something out into the world that I feel very happy and excited about. Like I'm proud of doing this and I'm also proud of sharing other people's work. And I think it's really so important for us to support independent artists. So yay. (laughs) So all of that is to say, I I do this podcast because I want to share people's stories and I want to share people's work. And I can do more of that if you tell people. I'm doing my thing over here with promoting in the ways that I can um, and creating the podcast, of course, and and these people, but they deserve to be heard. So I would love it if you would share the word too. All right. So that's it. MikeyPod.com. You probably know that already. I would love to hear from you. Uh, leave a review, blah, 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 all that stuff. And I will see you early next week. We're going to be back on our Monday swing. So um, I'll see you in just a few days. All right. Bye.